Your favorite PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors are right here every week on Next on the Tee. Join Chris as the greats of the game share their stories, insights and playing lessons. Now, back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Maureen Medill. You hear Maureen frequently broadcasting from on the course during PGA Tour events for SiriusXM's PGA Tour channel, and I believe she does it better than anybody in the business. She's from Northern Ireland, but became one of the first two women golfers to come over to the States to play college golf on a golf scholarship. She attended Lamar University in Texas and helped the Lady Cardinals win the Texas AIAW State Championships in 1977 and 1978. In 2007, she was inducted into the Cardinal Hall of Honor. She won the British Ladies Amateur Championship in 1979 and the British Ladies Amateur Stroke Play Championship in 1980. She represented Britain and Ireland in the Curtis Cup in 1980 and later helped coach the team in 1998 and 2004. She turned pro in 1986 and played on the Ladies European Tour until 1996, recording a couple of runner-up finishes at the 1989 Wilmore Match Play Championship and the 1990 Hannigan Open. She's worked for the BBC and, as I mentioned, a moment ago on also on Sirius XM's PGA Tour channel and I'm delighted to have her back with me on Next on the T. Hello Maureen, thanks for coming back on the show. Well my goodness Chris, you've done some research. I, I, <laughs> I'd all find it very good if you could have left the dates out because I find it like, like from the dim ages. <laughs> Next time I'll leave off the dates, we'll just mention the wins and the, and the, uh, and the championships <laughs> you were in. So, Maureen, I wanted to start our time together by going back to your college days. And, you know, I'm, you know, the audience knows who you are and knows your voice for sure. But I bet they don't know that story about how you and another young lady were the first women to come uh, from England and Ireland over here to the States on a golf scholarship. And like I say, playing at Lamar University in Texas. Talk about how that came about. Um. Well, it came about really unexpectedly. Um, the player who came over with me was a Welsh international by the name of Lisa Isherwood. And Lisa was attending college in Wales. She was going to Lampeter College. And I was attending the University of St Andrews. And um, I had done a year at St Andrews. And during the summer after my first year there, I was playing some of the British tournaments, and we met a Canadian player named Pam Johns. And Pam had been um, instructed by her coach, who was the wonderful Pat Park from Lamar University, um, to keep an eye out for recruiting one or two players. And, I mean, this was um, – nobody from the U.K. had ever gone to the States on a golf scholarship for no females. Um, Nick Faldo and Sandy Lyle were dipping their toe into the water – um, it hadn't suited either of them particularly, and they came home, I think, after a few weeks and months. But um, it was the Canadian player who was playing on the Lamar University team at the time who, you know, signed it, signed it as out, and we were both interested. And then nothing happened for a while. And rather curiously, all the information that had been sent over by Pat Park to my home, um, it never arrived. And um, it actually arrived about six months later, perfectly addressed and everything. But by that time, Pat had taken it upon herself to phone my home. We had been in touch. The arrangements were made. 
And therefore, midway through my second year at St. Andrews University, I upped sticks and went off to Beaumont in Texas. So it was a bit of a culture shock for me. So, you know, to that end, talk about, you know, what what the transition was like for you coming, you know, from over there, obviously, to here. And then, you know, when when we think about playing golf, you know, over in Ireland and Wales, and then we think about playing golf in Texas, the first thing that least comes to my mind is wind, a lot of wind. So I, I yeah, have to imagine that, that, that helped you. Yes, I think it did. Um, I think um, I was only still only 18 years of age when I came over. So um, despite the fact that I'd done a year at university, I was still, you know, pretty green around the gills. And it was a massive thing. You know, we're talking about the late 70s. So, you know, there was no Skype. There was no FaceTime. There was no easy way to keep in touch. Um, you wrote letters. You were a bit anxious if you got a phone call because it actually meant that somebody had died, which did happen to me, um, you know, within a month of me arriving in Texas because my uncle had a heart attack and died. So, you know, you were extraordinarily isolated. But my pal Lisa had come over as well. Um, there were a lot of international students. So there were a lot of us in the same boat, and Pat Park was a very inspirational coach, and she just made us all feel uh, very much at home. Um, for the first six months, I was excruciatingly homesick, and um, once I came back again, I went home for a wee while and came back again, then I was really okay, and I absolutely loved it. But I remember one of the first courses that I played was a course called Tyrrell's Wood, which is not very far outside Beaumont. And we used to go and play at a place called Bayou Den. And I think it was, I can't remember which one of those. It was one of those, I believe, that Bruce Litsky used to practice a lot at. And it was the same sort of era where he was, you know, taking shed loads of money to the bank from just dipping in and out of the PGA Tour because he was never somebody who who played an enormous schedule. And we always used to joke that whenever his wallet was getting a little bit light, he'd just go back out in the PGA Tour. And even if he'd had weeks off, he would always have, you know, like a top 10 finish. And um, he was just such a phenomenal player. And so we had lots of, you know, we had lots of good players around us. um, But we had a, it was a great bunch of people. It was a tremendous time of my life. And, um, you know, Beaumont and Houston and that area has been very much in my thoughts with the hurricane damage that has been caused recently, you know, and I'm still in touch with my coach, Pat Park, and, you know, wanting to make sure that she and all her friends and family were safe, although they've moved a little bit out of out of Beaumont and Houston now, so they weren't too uh, badly affected. But, you know, it's still I have a very soft spot in my heart for um, Texas. So, you know, fast forward several years. Now we're at 2007. You get inducted into their Hall of Honor. What was that like for you? Well, I I wasn't present, which was a great um, shame. I it was sort of an honor that was bestowed on me from afar, in a way. Um, I I ended up with a very strange hybrid type of degree because I'd done a year and a bit at St Andrews University, and then when I transferred over to Lamar. That translated into, uh, I got credits for two years and a bit. 
And so then I finished off in Beaumont. And whereas in, in St. Andrews I'd been doing um, French and English, um, it sort of morphed into French and Spanish when I was at Lamar. And um, so to do all of that, that, that was lovely. I loved that. Um, it was a great honour. Um, I, I, I can't honestly recall what was going on in my life 10 years ago that I wasn't able to get. It, I, I can't remember exactly the timing of it and why I wasn't able to be there. Um, but it was, Pat kept me up to date and informed of everything and the, the evening. And of course, I was only one of several, so it wasn't like it was a, a do for me. You know, there were far more well-deserving people who were actually there. But um, no, it's something I'm very proud of. Maureen, I want to get your thoughts on some things going on now around, uh, you know, around both tours. Actually, it'll start on the PGA Tour. And um, youth is certainly being served on the PGA Tour. This last weekend, we saw Xander Schofle win the, the Tour Championship at East Lake. Mm-hmm. He's 23. Justin Thomas has won five times this year on tour, including the PGA and now the FedEx Cup. He's 24. Jordan Spieth is 24. When I was watching the Tour Championship, it, it sort of felt like Paul Casey was the old guy at the bar. He was trying to break through, you know, get him, getting one of probably one of the biggest wins of his career, but he's at, at age 40. How do you think about, I mean, when you look at this group of young players and how you know how well they're playing you know where where does that fit in the annals of time it sort of feels Nicola Palmer player-esque from the early 1960s as those guys were coming up how do you feel about what you're seeing from the young players on the PGA Tour well I think it is really really exciting and you know I was fortunate enough to work a lot through the Tiger era when, you know, he was literally head and shoulders above everybody else. And that was exciting for a whole lot of other different reasons. But there is nothing like the competition. These guys are um, they're pulling the best out of each other. And it's lovely to be at the forefront to see all of that happening. I think from a European point of view, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, oh, this is a little scary <laughs> because... You know, if you you've just made if you take Spieth, Fowler, Thomas, Kepka, Reed, Schofield, Finau, you know Russell Henley as well, Daniel Berger. There's about eight players. They're all in their twenties, um, and you're thinking, hmm. And what it reminds me of really is not quite so much the Nicholas Palmer era because the you know we had the big three, of course. And there were a few like Casper and Trevino on the fringes. But then I suppose in the 80s over here in Europe, you know, we had Sandy Lai, Nick Faldo, Ian Wiesman, Bernhard Langer, Seve, and then closely followed by Olafable. So we had our own little coterie there of players who we saw how they sparked off one off the other. Um, I think your young American players They've been playing golf together for well over a decade. They've been competing. They are genuine friends. Um, and in such a competitive arena, you know, that, that doesn't always come along. I think it's a special time and I think it's, it's one, it's one to be enjoyed. But you know, you can never take anything for granted because we see little spells of players dominating. You know, we had, um, Jordan Spieth in 2015 was, oh, nobody was going to get near him. We've had Henrik Stenson. We've had Rory. We've had Jason Day. 
you know, then the beginning of this year, you'd Matsuyama. And, you know, suddenly now, there are other players we're talking about. It is so tough out there that um, I think there's going to be a very natural ebb and flow. You know, we haven't even mentioned the world number one, Dustin Johnson. You know, I mean, he's probably at the moment the least talked about world number one, just at the moment. And he had, you know, he had a blistering spell there, which was unfortunately halted by that trip that he had at Augusta. So, you know, we can't take anything for granted. They've got to enjoy their time in the sun because although they they look indomitable and unbeatable, the sport shows us that that isn't the case and it is very, very difficult to stay there for a prolonged time. So it's, you know, exciting times ahead and uh, I wouldn't like to, you know, I think all of these guys are going to be in the conversation for a long time. And even on the European side, you know, I, I think, you know, we as Americans don't get enough exposure to a lot of the great players. I mean, we, we're seeing John Rahm because he's playing, uh, you know, more frequently over here, but he's a guy who's, who's just about to turn 23. He's not even 23 yet for, for another month or so. Tommy Fleetwood is a guy that we just got introduced to, I think, this year. You know, Sergio Garcia suddenly seems like the old guy on the European tour at 37 years old. Talk about, you know, some of the young developing players that uh, that we're going to see more of on the European side as well. Well, you see, I think um, you've got a little glimpse of some of them at the Ryder Cup, you know, when Matt Fitzpatrick um, probably didn't shine at the Ryder Cup, um, but I think he's a very underestimated, it's easy to underestimate him. He reminds me a great deal of Olafable. He has a game that is, he's never going to be the longest. He's a very light guy in build. Um, but he, my goodness, he's got a great head on his shoulders. He manages his game extraordinarily well. He's got a deadly short game and he's got a lot of heart. So he reminds me of Ollie. Um, John Ram, of course, as you've mentioned. Now we haven't seen much of him in Europe because he bounced straight off to the PGA Tour from leaving college in the States. So you guys have actually seen more of him, I think, than the European fans. Um, what I enjoyed this year was that um, he won the Irish Open, which was at my home club of Port Stewart, and he did it in very fine style. So that was the first time that I had an opportunity, you know, to see him really up close. And when you have somebody of the stature of Phil Mickelson, you know, saying before the guy has hit a shot as a pro that he's going to be a top 10 player in the world sooner rather than later. You know, you, you, you get yourself out of the clubhouse and you wander out to have a look. And it was, it was well worth it because he's strong. He's long. He seems to have all the attributes. He's got, um, slightly individual action, but my, he's, he's powerful and he seems to have a good nerve. So, there's so many skills, aren't there, Chris, that go into making a top sports person. The, the technical aspect is only one small part. And Tommy Fleetwood, yes, he, he's another one that I would hope will be uh, gracing Ryder Cup teams for the Europeans for many years to come. And, of course, we've got Cabrera Bello, who's a little bit more of a, a slow burn. Um, for a long time, I I have to confess, I mean, he, he was a good player. I always thought he was maybe slightly flaky. And, you know, over the last three years, I've got to, well, eat my words on that. 
um, because he has grown and developed into a very, very assured performer. And he was the one who did shine for us at Hazel Team um, last year in the Ryder Cup. So, you know, we're going to have to keep digging a few good ones out to um, give the Americans a run in future years, but um, I'm sure we're capable of that. <laughs> Maureen, staying on that side of the pond, we, we saw some unfortunate and questionable things take place at the LPGA's last major of the year over at the Evian Masters in France. The, the event was won by Anna, Annika, or Anna Norquist of, uh, of Sweden. Mm-hmm. She won in a playoff over American Brittany Altomer. But the first round was canceled due to weather. Instead of trying to fit that round in over the weekend or extending the tournament into Monday or even Tuesday if they had to, right? They, they didn't do that. The playoff was conducted, unfortunately, in a driving rain and, and hailstorm a bit. How did you feel about how they handled that tournament? I was really cross. <laughs> That's why I felt I was cross and I was disappointed. Now, I mean... Frequently, we are maybe not informed as to all that goes in or on behind decisions, but, you know, the Ladies' European Tour um, is in a bit of a powerless state at the moment. And um, this was a major on their home patch. And, you know, a major, you deserve to go the extra mile to make a major 72 holes. Now, sometimes, you know, it, it, it doesn't happen, but it seemed a very early capitulation to me that by Thursday they had decided that it was only going to be 54 holes. And I've not, you know, I haven't, there hasn't been an explanation offered for that apart from the fact that it was, um, the weather forecast was pretty dire. But, um, you know, weather forecasts can be wrong. I mean, um, and I was terribly, terribly disappointed in that. You know, um, Monday finishes happen frequently. Um, Tuesday finishes in a major happen rarely, but they have happened. Um, Laura Davis won her U.S. Open in 1987 on a Tuesday finish. Um, the U.S. Open um, lost today's play, so the, the fourth round was played in the Monday. Then there was a playoff, and it's an 18-hole playoff in the U.S. Women's Open. So that was on a Tuesday. Um, you know, I suppose really in a year or two years' time, who will remember? I don't know. But I, I just think for the integrity of the women's game, and, you know, a lot of people aren't even very keen that there are five majors instead of four, you know, it just seemed to me to devalue it a little bit. They didn't look as if they were just putting, just busting a gut to to play it to a conclusion. But having said that, we had a wonderful winner, and there was tremendous golf played in the in very poor conditions. But you know, I would have liked to have seen a really decent attempt at making a 72-hole tournament, or at least a decent explanation as to why that attempt wasn't made. Mm-hmm. Maureen, I want to also get your thoughts on this year's Solheim Cup. It was a very big success, especially from a marketing and a viewer, you know, viewership standpoint. It was the most watched women's golf telecast in the last eight years. Viewership up 250% over the 2015 event. Talk about what, what, you know, what we're seeing from the growth of that great event. Well, I think, you know, hats off to the people of Iowa. I mean, my goodness, they, they came out and supported that. 
um, you know, in droves. And a lot of the people on the ground do make the event with atmosphere and support and the general atmosphere and the welcoming of the, the visitors and all of that. Um, the golf was, quite frankly, extraordinary. Um, and I think really, you know, when I look back on that whole three days, I think what the one match that will encapsulate the entire contest for me was the top singles on Sunday between Lexi Thompson and Anna Nordquist. I mean, it was just an amazing match. I mean, Anna got off to a hot start and was four up after four or five holes. Lexi couldn't hit a barn door with a banjo. You know, we could all identify with this game where, you you know, some days you think it's easy and the next day you wonder, have you ever played? And then the next thing, uh, you know, Julie Ingster comes out, has a word with Lexi, and the afterburners are switched on. And, you know, Anna puts a, a second shot, shot stone dead for a birdie at the 11th, and Lexi holds out for a two to win the hole, and it went on from there. It was amazing golf, um, right up to Anna's final approach, stone dead at the last from 150 yards, 60 yards out, and a half point was just completely the right result. The American golf was tremendous. There were no weak links. Um, even players who had had only maybe a so-so season, I'm thinking of Paula Creamer here, um, stepped up and played probably her best golf of the year. And um, as always, you know, for a winning side, the winning side holds lots of putts. And, you know, that's what the American team did. It was captivating and it was fantastic to watch. It was a great, great spectacle. And Maureen, as, as great as those matches were, the Asian players were left out. And, and they may be the best players out on the LPGA Tour. Do we need something like a President's Cup for the LPGA Tour to see who really, you know, the best team is? Well, you know, I think, I mean, I know there's been a bit of talk about do we need to change the Solheim Cup? Do we need to have the LPG or the Americans playing against the rest of the world? Um, you know, you've got the best players in the world aren't, aren't playing in this. Um, uh, I would say people have short memories. I mean, in 2015, uh, at, uh, Heidelberg in Germany, the Americans had a Medina-like um, resurgence in the singles um, to, you know, win that Solheim Cup. They were miles behind. Then there was a kerfuffle over the, you know, the 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 putt that hadn't been conceded, and you know, America w- w- zoomed into battle in the singles and managed to win the cup cup from a big deficit. Now, if they hadn't had that phenomenal recovery, that would have been Europe's third consecutive win in the Solheim Cup, you know. So it is close, and people forget that. Um, I think I don't see any reason why there can't be another match. The the Koreans could possibly um, play an international team. I mean, it, it would be there's plenty of scope for all of that. And I think, you know, to make golf more um, user-friendly, we've got to make room for many more match play events. It's not what the, um, uh, you know, the purists like, um, because, you know, they like stroke play and then they know when things are going to finish and so that kind of thing. But there is nothing like the gladiatorial atmosphere 
of, uh, you know, a match play event. And, you know, rather than trying to squeeze it in, I would, you know, be saying, let's, let's, let's get it in and into the schedule and, um, you know, keep, keep doing it and keep getting more people interested. We're competing with a lot of other sports. Maureen, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your work now as a broadcaster. You know, when, when did you get started? How did you get started? And, it, and was it something that you always wanted to do? Oh, not at all. I never considered it. Um, I was chugging along trying to play professional golf. And I think um, it was at the beginning of a little bit of um, coverage of our golf tournaments at weekends. And once or twice when I'd missed the cut, I was just asked, would I like to do some commentary? And I was never that great a player that I felt that I could just say, oh, yeah, I'll do some commentary. If I'd missed the cut, I wanted to be out practicing for the following week. So I just, in a slightly cavalier way, said, no, 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 don't bother me, not at all. And then I suppose one day I got a, a phone call to ask, would I do some radio work um, for BBC up at the Open Championship. And, of course, we didn't have an, a tournament again on the opposite week to the Open. So off I went to Troon uh, in 97, the year Justin Leonard won. And that was the beginning of it. But, um, it, no, it was no, not something I set out to do. I fell into it. And I was, you know, just asked to do a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. And um, then when I stopped playing and I got involved in coaching, I was able to keep it running alongside. So it's always been sort of um, a strand that has run alongside other stuff that I do. Um, but I must say it's been, um, I do enjoy working in, in America. It's a bit, uh, it, it's, I, I enjoy, I love the, the nuances and the differences in, in language that are sometimes unexpectedly thrown up. And, um, you know, uh, all the broadcast crews that I work with out in the States have a great, great sense of humor. And it's, uh, it's, it's always a good week when I'm, I feel I enjoy it so much when I'm out with them. And speaking of, uh, you know, of language nuances, have you ever come out with a, a, you know, a statement, a comparison, you know, a, you know, a little thing where, some, where somebody with a producer or someone in your go, what did you just say? Oh yeah, that happens quite a lot. Um, and there's a, there's actually, um, there is a little story there about that. I'm not sure if you, you guys probably won't understand it. Um, it's a very Irish thing, you see. So there'd be a lot of my English friends wouldn't be too sure exactly what it meant. Um, but I was asked to do a little bit of a recap one day of my, the three players in my group. And this was on a Friday and we were getting near the cut line. And one of the players was um, quite well up the leaderboard. The other was missing the cut by miles. And the other one was Davis Love. And Davis was, you know, he birdied a hole. He was about 14 or 15 on the back nine on Friday. And he would birdie a hole and he would get himself inside the projected cut line. And then he would three putt the next green, you see, and he'd be back in danger. But he was really working very hard. So I was recounting this. I dealt with the first two players, and then I just said, and Davis at the moment is on two under, and he's working like he's uh, working like Billy O to make the cut, and that that was it. You see, so that was the end of my piece. So there was a long old pause, 
And I think it was Brian Catrick who was up in the box. And it was, then he just comes on. He says, okay, Mo, who's Billy O? And you know, it was, it just made me laugh because it was something, it's an expression in Ireland. If somebody's working like Billy O, it means they're working really hard. They're grafting. You know, they're grinding. They're leaving no, no stone unturned to get the job done. And it, he, I don't know where it comes from, that expression. And it, it, the word is just Billy O. But he took it like a name, Billy O. And it just made me laugh. And, you know, we get things like that where they have no idea what I'm saying. And then you guys come on with some things, um, some of your sporting expressions from other games with which I'm not particularly familiar. And I have no idea what that means. So, you know, it's uh, 50-50 really, Chris. <laughs> That's great. Hey, Maureen, when, you, when you're doing a tournament, who, who are some of the players that you not only enjoy interviewing, but you enjoy hanging out with, you know, off the air? Well, I wouldn't say that I probably, I mean, I don't, um, I don't hang out with any of them off the air. I don't know them well enough. I mean, I suppose the Irish ones I would know a little bit to do that with, but I never try and do that anyway, um, because I think, I think their time is, you know, they're on, they're on show all the time and, uh, you know, they don't want to look up and see somebody who works in the media necessarily beside them. You know, it's easy, it's easier, I think, to do that with some of the females and people that you've played with yourself, but not when your relationship has only ever been media and player. I think that's not easy. I mean, the, the people I enjoy interviewing are the people who look at you and treat you as if you're a proper person. Um, Sergio is very good at that. You know, you never get the feeling that they are just fulfilling the fixture, you know, and they're just, he's just there to, you know, you can't wait to get away. I mean, it's, Sergio is, he's, he can be awkward, but he, he looks at you and he answers the questions. Um, there are some players, as I'm sure you will have come across in all sorts of sports, who who appear to be okay, but in reality they're stonewalling you, and there's just like this sort of dead look in their eyes. Other people I enjoy, I always enjoy talking to Rory McIlroy. Um, Zach Johnson is just, he is, I really enjoy any time I've interviewed him. Um, Jordan Spieth, the same. Um, you know, it's, you, you, you can just tell a lot by how, I mean, we're a necessary evil in a way in their world, you know, and we, it must be terribly irritating, particularly if you haven't done awfully well or you've bogeyed the last hole or something and you've got to explain your every action to somebody, you know, but, the guys who look at you and try to answer you honestly and as a golfer um, are the one. They're just really, really nice people. That's most of them. Maureen, just a couple more before we let you go. And the Masters feels like it's 100 years from now. I think several of us who love watching the game of golf, you know, and we look forward to the majors plus, you know, the Players' Championship and obviously the Tour Championship here. You get those about one a month. 
throughout the summer, and we sort of go into a golf-watching depression now until April. Does it feel like forever to you, you know, because you're so involved in the game and you do other things, you know, between now and, and the time the Masters comes, or do you focus more on your students and other things between now and then? I focus more on, on other things. I, I like the variety in, in what I do. I tell you what, I think that it must seem um, like an age for Rory McIlroy because until he manages to get a green jacket on, there is always going to be this long, long lead in to the tournament that can, you know, would enable him to complete the Grand Slam. We've got two other guys in waiting, haven't we? Jordan and um, Phil Mickelson. But, you know, it's uh, you're right. You get into a rhythm, don't you, after Augusta? Um, it's very easy to actually just build up the importance of that tournament. And that's something that, um, well, for all of us in this part of the world, I think, you know, we... We do build it up in our minds a bit because we're also keen for Rory to finish off the job of the Grand Slam, uh, knowing how difficult it is. And, it, of course, with it being the first one, you just don't want to weigh it down with even added pressure. So it, it's going to be fascinating, you know, to see over the years how he copes with, with that. Um, so that's we've always got quite a, a, an interest in the sort of slight off-season stuff there in this neck of the woods because of Rory. You know, like, what's he doing? How is he practicing? How much is he playing? Is he injury-free? You know, we, we we could talk about Rory till the cows come home, you know. We're so keen to see him do well and to win. Um, so, no, I quite I quite like, I always like the off-season, you know. Even when you're passionate about something, you can get a bit much of it and the enthusiasm is ramped right up again for Augusta. Maureen, before we let you go, I want to get you know, one playing lesson from you, and you've got a wonderful site, medillgolf.com, and on there you've got a tip about how to get out of a fairway bunker, which most of us have a fear of being in. Do you mind sharing that tip? Well, if you've got a fair, no, I don't mind at all. If you have a fairway bunker, which, um, you know, has not got much of a lip on it, and you've got an opportunity, you want to make decent distance. There's two major things I think you should do. Um, before you get in the bunker, look, look at the profile of the shot. Look at the ball sitting in the sand and look at the amount of lip that you've got to carry. Because standing at the side, you, off, you often get a better perspective of that than when you're actually in the bunker. And if you stand at the side and you see how high the lip is and you think that if you were on the grass, you, you would maybe be able to get out of that with a five iron. When you go into the bunker, don't take more than a six, okay? Now, you've got one of your primary aims is obviously to get it out, but it's to advance the ball a decent distance. So a thin shot is absolutely fine as long as you can clear the lip. That's the reason for going, you know, taking a slightly more lofted club and being a wee bit conservative with your decision of a club. So you want to maybe catch it slightly thin. Thin is okay. So get a good stance in the bunker. And what I'd suggest to you is the last thing you do before you, you, you can have pretty much your normal ball position. You can just have a normal swing. 
But the last thing you do before you take the club back is just slightly tense your forearms. Not, you know, into being like a vice-like grip, but just slightly tense them. That has the result of just fractionally shortening the radius. So that is going to make you probably hit the ball, you know, just a little bit higher up. And that usually, as long as you've been pretty astute with your club selection, that's usually enough to advance you a decent distance down the fairway. Of course, it's easy if you don't go in there in the first place, Chris. But <laughs> if you do, that's what you need to think about. Maureen, remind our listeners how they can uh, follow you, whether it's online or if it's over social media as well. Well, my sister and I have this website, which you have kindly alluded to. And um, Patricia, my sister, has been in the golf industry all her life. She is a golf writer, and she wrote for the Times in London for 17 years. And she has covered more major championships than I have ever even been close to going to. And we have had such a lovely life from golf that we just wanted to share our passion for the game. And so we write a blog every week, and you will find it on medillgolf.com. And um, we decided early on, it's not a news, uh, so you can get results anywhere around the world, but we comment and we make observations on things and people that we like and people we've come across, you know, through the years. Sometimes it's at a club level, sometimes it's on a big, much broader spectrum. And, you know, we just decided that, um, as I say, we wanted to share our passion with other other people. So we have that blog, which we started um, just over a year ago, and I thought that we would be, uh, you know, we, we might have a dozen friends who would look at it. I can't believe, A, that she and I haven't fallen out, and B, that people seem to be extraordinarily interested in reading it. So I'd be very, very pleased to have American re- more American readers and feedback. That would be lovely. And um, on social media, I am, um, what is my Twitter handle? Is it at MoGolf99? I think that's what it is. And, um, yeah, so you can, anybody can get me there. So I always love chatting about golf, and it's always good to chat with you, Chris. I think it's about a year since we spoke before, isn't it? Yeah, it was almost a year to the day, as a matter of fact, since the last time oh, that we right, had an opportunity right, yeah. to speak. So, well, Maureen, I can't thank you enough for your time today. And it's like I say, it's always a privilege getting to spend some time with you. I hope you'll come back, you know, sooner next time and share more of your stories and your insights with us because you're so fantastic. (laughs) Well, it's it's lovely of you to say that. And uh, yes, I'm hoping to be back in the States um, commentating in the majors next year. Well, thank you again, Maureen. I look forward to the opportunity, like I say, to catch up with you in between now and then. All the best to you, your sister, and the rest of your family. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That was a great Maureen Medill. And again, you can uh, follow her online at Medill Golf. And she spells her last name M-A-D-I-L-L. So MedillGolf.com. Stay up to date with what she's doing. Check out her blog and then uh, follow her on social media. And you'll be hearing her again out on the PGA Tour very, very soon. She's fantastic. I can't thank Maureen enough for her time.